been a while. It has been a while. It's been a while. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Um, in the personal notes of what's going on with Shannon, Cyclone Kid is back to in-person school. So nice. my adorable 13-year-old, who is also happens to be in the autism spectrum, is back in in-person school and doing incredibly well. So shout out to him and all of the little kiddos. I, I'll, I'll share this one very cute story uh, before we introduce our guest geek uh, of this episode. Uh, so on the first day of school, he was having a rough time at school, and so his teacher told me that one of the other young men in his class saw that he was having a difficult time and noticed that when I dropped him off, he noticed that I have, uh, I'm still rocking the blue hair highlights. So this other kiddo went and found some blue pipe cleaners and made a little puppet for Cyclone Kid. It's like, look, it's like your mom. And so made him a little get to know you. Yeah, I know. Isn't that the best? So uh, that shout is out amazing. To, right. So shout out to the other kiddos in his class. Shout out to Cyclone Kid, who is adjusting very well. Shout out to that kiddo's parents. Yes. I mean, talk about it, because you never know how it's going to be. And especially, you know, in this particular scenario, um, this is a brand new school for Cyclone Kid, and it's so far into the school year. So uh, even if you didn't, um, add into the fact that we weren't doing in person and then we were and then we weren't, that kind of thing. He's in a whole new setting with some kiddos that had already built their own little class community. And oh. so the fact that he was welcomed into it and they were like, hey, glad to see you. Well done to all the kiddos over there. So shout out to him. I'm glad that he's doing well. It is a big relief for his mom. Just, you know, I'm doing very well because of that. So That's amazing. And he's uh, getting a vaccine as well? Yes. With the new rule of you know, 12 to 18-year-olds can now get a vaccine. Right. So the minute I got the email that said that he uh, was eligible, I signed him up. So that is going to happen this week as well. So um, my ex and I, so his dad and I are dividing and conquering. <laughs> so his ex is going to take him for dose number one, and then I'm going to follow up and take him when it's time to send him back. So That's awesome. Yeah. So my kid, we uh, I have a freshly minted teenager. Remind me how old your kiddo is now. Is it six or seven? Uh, almost seven. Almost seven. Birthday is in August. Yeah, he's uh, he's excited about school ending, and uh, we did get him into a summer program. He's actually a um, he's in a Spanish immersion. Yes. Um, and again, it's hard because they were all remote this year. We opted to keep him remote, so this is kind of a step back into school. So like a six week program back in school. Keep keep your Spanish up to date. That whole thing. So he's excited about that as well. To go see, to go into school and actually see his friends. How hard was that for you and your wife? Because are either of you fluent at all, or are you just propping him up in front of Zoom teacher? Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? Um, my wife speaks Spanish not fluently, but she can hold a small conversation. I don't. <laughs> so it was, and she's the one who kind of stayed with him all day, every day to get his work done. Um, I'd come in and kind of more or less float here and there, but I'm going to give all the all the credit to my wife and um, the home team, essentially, right? The, the, the you know, my, my wife and my mom and dad and my father-in-law, everybody kind of banded together, just like a lot of other people. Families just coming together to, to help each other out. So um, I do not, I've, I'm learning Spanish from him. How's that? That is wonderful. Congratulations to your kiddo. Yeah. Is he a good professor? Is he like, Dad, here you go. 
Yeah, totally. Okay, wonderful. I can imagine that. You have that kiddo that I feel like he'd be great. So speaking of family, um, our uh, guest geek this week, I consider him family because he helped uh, us in the comedy scene for years and years and years and years. He also has his own family, and so hopefully we can give him some tips because he has a brand new we one basically, in comparison to our kiddos. So joining us this week, uh, author, uh, writer, all things for the comedy scene, Mr. Patrick Strait. Hello, Patrick. Welcome to the show. Hey. Thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate that. Now, Patrick, uh, you are actually, uh, I give you, like, gangster status, and here's why. Um, because, you know, as a, a, a reporter and an author, we're going to talk about your book that dropped earlier this year, um, you have covered the Minneapolis slash St. Paul comedy scene for years and years and years and years and years. And I, you know, uh, Jayden de- knows knows a bit of it because he's been friends with me for so long. But, Patrick, the fact that as a non-comedian, you were able to weather all of the ridiculousness that comes along with hanging out with all of us comedians, I just give you a round of applause. That is incredible. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, yes. Because we are a complex bunch of human beings. Also, you say weathered like it's in the past. Like, I don't <laughs> still get 16 <laughs> questions when I've written something about somebody the next day. It says, well, I meant to say it this way, so please change everything I already said. Like, that uh, is every interview, no matter how long I've known somebody for. Well, here's what, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take myself out of that. I don't think I have ever harassed you. Yeah, you, you have know, not. You, you have know, not. You are the lone exception to the rule. Everybody else... Suck it. Shannon, great. <laughs> you are, I like I mean, that. Everybody least, else suck it. I really do appreciate I mean, Patrick has done a fantastic job of, of helping me promote some shows and, and showcasing uh, the depth and breadth of the comedy community here in the Twin Cities and showcasing that there, uh, you, you people, uh, it's very easy to sit there and go, one com- you've seen one comedian, you've seen them all. And Patrick does a great job of going, that is not the case. There is a variety of complexities to this out there, and you showcase all of it, Patrick. So when you uh, decided that you're going to start, you know, and you we've read your work in the City Pages and the Growler and Thrillist, how did you end up with this particular beat? So, okay, so here's the, the quick version, right? Mm-hmm. So once upon a time, back in, like, 2007, I first moved to Minnesota, and I, like, I'd seen stand-up before. Like, I'm from Michigan, so, like, I'd gone to, like, there's a comedy club out there called Mark Ridley's I'd been to, and, like, I'd seen, like, bigger shows and stuff, but, like, I'd never been around a comedy scene before, right? So I remember, it's funny because the, the first time I remember I went to Acme, I walked down there because I didn't know anybody. Like, I just moved to Minnesota. I had no friends. I knew nobody in town. My my girlfriend at the time had to go out of town for work, and I was like, all right, I, I just got to have something to do. And so I found an ad in the back of City Pages that said there was a comedy club. I said, great, I'll walk down there. So I went down there, went to the show. And it was so much fun, not just because, you know, I mean, uh, the headliner that night, I actually remember the headliner was Alonzo Bowden. He was great. He was right off of, like, um, Last Comic Standing. So right. he was, you know, a big deal. But it was funny because I remember, you know, watching, like, the uh, the opener, you know, the MC and the feature. And, you know, not to get too inside baseball, but I'll start name dropping. Uh, I remember Amber Preston was right. the, uh, the MC that night. And it's funny because I remember, you know, she was great. She was super funny. And, and I went back to a couple more shows after that, and I started to see, you know, Amber was there a lot. I started to see Tommy Ryman was performing a lot. Um, you know, a lot of these, you know, these names who, at the time, I didn't know who they were. I just knew they were comedians. And I was like, oh, man, these guys are so funny. They must be, they're on stage. They must be big stars, right? To <laughs> me, that was all I knew is if you're on stage at a comedy club, you're a big-time star. 
And I remember I went to I went to an open mic finally. I went down to Acme's open mics to check it out. And all of a sudden, I see these people who I've seen at shows. You know, I would say there's probably a better than average chance that you and I probably crossed paths, and I didn't even know it yet at right. that point. Seeing, mm-hmm. you know, all these people who who I only know is like, oh man, I pay money to go see these people on stage, and they're there, you know, working on material and hanging out and bombing and all right. this other stuff. And it was the craziest like aha moment for me. Right, it was like the first time I ever like really understood kind of like behind the curtain because I assumed to that point. The comedians, you just, I don't know, I assumed you, you either, like, you went to school or you just, you know, you, you ate something and you woke <laughs> up and you put it the next day. Like, I didn't know how it worked, but I was just like, yeah, you know, that's like a big time, that's a big time deal. And this was like the first time I saw, like, this is how, you know, comedians kind of build their act. This right. is how the development of the scene happens. And so then at that point, once I started going to more shows and, you know, finding other open mics and stuff in town and seeing these other comedians, I said, well, there's some really funny people who, you know, aren't necessarily, you know, they're not headliners. They're not necessarily getting booked to these big spots, but, but they're really funny. And, you know, I knew, you know, obviously bands, when they would start to get a little bit of buzz, obviously they get a little bit of press. And, you right. know, even like in our local scene, you know, theater actors would start to get some, you know, conversations, even, you know, smaller, you know, like um, – you know, like the huge theater, you'd have mixed blood and places like that where you'd see actors were getting a little buzzed, but there was really nobody talking about comedians that much. And so I actually had reached out to City Pages, and I think the thing that saved me was the fact that, to your point, I wasn't a comedian because at the time, uh, another comedian named Brian Miller was working for City Pages. Right. And he'd done, he had done a little bit of writing about comics, but I think he knew, he was smart enough to know a, he was probably smart enough to know that he didn't want to deal with comedians every day, all day, in his real job. But he also was smart enough to know that he he needed to kind of step back, right? He had to kind of be unbiased in that arena because you know he's part of that scene. Right. I said, well, you know, I've got I've got no no allegiances here, so let me do it. And it started off, you know, just real small time. I started doing kind of little, you know, one off profiles about you know some of the. I remember some of the first ones I did. I did Tommy. Mm-hmm. I did. Erickson, I did uh, Gabe Noah and Chris Maddock. There was a lot of names who were, you know, around back then. And I just kind of did little profiles, and it just kind of built up from there. You know, it, it I started to get a little bit of a reputation, and then when headliners would come to town, you know, all of a sudden I was like, well, you know, nobody else is going to write about their comedy, so I'll do it, and it just kind of expanded. But the one story, and I know I'm talking a lot, but the one story, which i got to tell you, Shannon, because you'll appreciate this one. Jaden, you can appreciate this, too. I won't touch <laughs> Oh, I appreciate it. Fair enough, fair enough. So the, the deep, dark secret is way back when, when I first started going to the open mics and stuff for about the equivalent of a cup of coffee, I was like, you know what? I should do it. I should be a comic. I should get up and do it. And, and Shannon, let me ask you, like, when you, when you first started doing comedy, when you got up and you started performing, open mic or otherwise, like, how did you feel? Like, what was your, your feeling the first couple times that you got on stage? Um, I was incredibly nervous. Uh, I'm one of those people that when I'm nervous, I sweat. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, I internalize all of that. I mean, I felt like that, that ill in the, the pit of my stomach, like the first time I tried it. And I was in college, and it was one of those things that I had – I mean, I had to have people talk me into it. Even though I had written things and people thought I was funny, they still had to talk me into it. And so, you know, imposter syndrome is real. It's like, it was yeah. like, how did you feel? Well, and here's what I was going to say, because, I mean, that, I feel like it's probably a normal reaction, but I feel like a lot of comics will also tell me when they get off the stage, they're like, oh, that was it. Like, that's what I need yep. to do. 
I love that feeling, right? Right. I didn't have that feeling. It was the weirdest thing. Like That's not I, weird. I, That's exactly why, yeah. I mean, I, and that story, there's lots of people who tell me all the time, they're like, I've always wanted to. It's on my bucket list. I think I could. My friends say I can. And I, I'll only let them tell me that, like, twice. And then I go, well, you got to get on stage. <laughs> and then I go, you get on stage because it's not the same. You either get on stage and you go, I can do this, or you get on stage and you go, I never want to do that again um, because it's, you know, and, and some people, it takes them three or four times to try it. Like, you think you're going to catch the bug. Like, I thought I was going to maybe like running, and I did two half marathons and said, I am never running that long again. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing mm-hmm. it. It's not my jam. Um, but, you know, it was really like after I did my first set, I'm going, okay, I could do this, though. I remember yeah. thinking, I could do this, and, and I came back the next week. And uh, But I have other friends that are like, Hey, I got it out of my system. I don't want to do this all the time. So I totally understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was funny because, like, I mean, I probably did all together. I would say I probably did maybe five mics over mm-hmm. the course of a month or two. And I would, I would officially very, you know, very deep cut here. I would classify my performance as, okay, mm-hmm. like, about how good I would say I was. Like, I wasn't bad. Mm-hmm. wasn't great. I was fine. I was very forgettable would probably be my guess. But the funny thing is, is the very first time I did stand-up, I remember I went to Acme, and I put my name on the list, and I put my little star on there so I could get up. Yep. Oh, in my mind, I'm like, I'm pumped. I'm going to be a superstar. <laughs> this is it. You know, I'm going to be, this is, the, this is the beginning of the journey. This is the opening of the movie to me. And so I'm sitting there, waiting my turn, and right before me, because, you know, in Acme, usually all the, the newbies, like the people who it's their first time, they get up first. They right, put them they're on the all stacked at the beginning of the list. Mm-hmm. The person who goes before me, who was also doing her very first show ever, was Andy Erickson. Ah, so that's a whole different energy. And shout out to our friend Andy. Andy gets up there, and he crushed. I mean, he, (laughs) to this day, I've seen, I don't know how many stand shows, it was probably one of the most incredible crowd reactions I've ever seen. I mean, she decimated this place. Like, everybody was dying. And then here comes the stand-up comedy stylings of Patrick Strait to follow that. So, needless to say, Andy's headlining. She's been on TV. She's done so great for herself. I am writing about Andy, so that goes to show you where our where our careers kind of ended up. So. But I think that that's it's 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 a good. Thank you for sharing that, Patrick, because I do think it is good to know. Uh, the trajectory and where that goes, because there's also people who are the opposite of you that are delusional and probably should have stopped. <laughs> and um, but I mean, for me, it was it was I was a writer and I wanted people to eventually pay me to write for them. I've told you this before, mm-hmm. Patrick. And everything that I read said, well, then you need to go and do stand up long enough that you get a um, a reputation, and then other people will hire you, and that's how you end up writing on a show. Um, And then I did that for a while and was like, oh, and I just found my voice and got better at writing for myself. And then was like, oh, no, no, I'll just keep writing for me instead of trying to pivot out as quickly. Um, But Mm -hmm. I think it's also, and you probably know this because you've been around, you know, and and we are going to get to uh, your recently released book, Funny Things About Minnesota, uh, a funny thing about Minnesota. Uh, But the thing about the scene and I've come into Jayton's office before and, and bitched about this whole thing. It's the scene, being a part of the scene is one of the hardest things for people. 
because it isn't just about did you show up and you were funny. It's also how do you navigate this workplace? Because that's what the comedy scene, it's a workplace. And with no HR and <laughs> and no guarantee of what you're going to get for pay and no uh, paid time off or any of those things. It's this really complex workplace. And it's can you weather the workplace as much as... It's not for everybody, everybody, right? No, it's like, not for everybody. I mean, it's that experience lifetime. of walking into the unknown and that is your normal moving forward, um, not everybody can handle it. So I give you... Kudos, Patrick, for following a crushing show, and then you're still part of it. I yeah. Well, I think at that point I was probably still too naive to realize just what a different level everybody else was at than what I thought I was at. I still had that. I had the comedian megalomania. That's what I like yeah. to think. I had that quality of you know every comic, good or bad, is I thought I was great. So at least I had that going. Yeah. There's lots of people where you go, they get down, they're like, how'd you do? They're like, I killed it. We're like, did you? Did you? <laughs> you use that word the way I use that word? But okay. You feel comfortable in that answer. So go yep. ahead and do that. Um, but it is just complex. So how's that work as a non-standard comedian who still has to, like, sometimes keep standard comedian hours? Like, does your family go, okay, I get it, you're working? Or do they kind of look at you like, when are you going to be home? Or, or like, like... What do they say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, it's changed over the years. You know, when I first started doing this, I didn't have kids. You know, I wasn't even married yet. Mm-hmm. Now I got two kids, and I'm married, and I got a day job, and I got all this, you know, growing up sucks, guys. I don't know. I don't growing know if you guys know. It sucks. Yeah, it's no fun. Yeah. But, um, no, you know, I think, you know, it's one of those things where, and you know what this is like, Shannon, when you've been around it long enough, you, you start to kind of, and this is going to sound, I don't know, it's probably going to sound pretentious, you start to kind of know what shows are going to be good, what shows you can kind of stay away from, which comics really have something there, which ones bless their little hearts, but you know what, they're probably not going to stick around all that long. Right. So while it becomes, it becomes a little bit easier to have a little bit more, I think, discerning eye. And I know that makes me sound super snobby, but I think it's true. You know, you can start to tell who is putting in the work and who is, you know, showing up and being funny and who who is doing something different and unique and what shows are really interesting and, uh, I mean, and I know I'm going to suck up to you here, but I've said this to you before when we've interviewed. One of the reasons I was, like, talking to you is because you are always, you know, you're doing something different. You approach things from a unique aspect. And that's something I really love about comics in the scene today is, yes, you know, you can go to a, an Acme or a House yeah. of Comedy or a this, this, this or whatever it is, and you can see people get up there and, you know, they'll, they'll have a great five minutes, yeah. ten minutes, whatever it is, you know, in front of, 30 people, but there's people now like yourself who are finding new ways to get their comedy out. New innovative ways to to let people know that, hey, you know, comedy's available. You know, I know before we, we went on the air here, we kind of talked about sometimes I can backfire on you if right. you get too creative, but but it's cool. So, I mean, I, I these days am now more interested in who's, who's doing something different and doing something unique and who seems like they, you know, they really want this and who's kind of in it for the long haul. Right. So that's it's, been, it's gotten easier over the years because, yeah, like you said, early on, I was, while I wasn't doing comedy, I was every open micer. You know, I was showing up at everything. I was, I remember I'd show up at shows and I'd be, like, the only guy in the crowd. And I'm like, okay, well, this is going to be weird because now everybody knows that I'm here because right. I'm the only one here. But, but uh, no, I mean, it's gotten better. And, and like I said, I mean, it's funny because 
the, the scene, in my opinion, you know, it just keeps getting more. It keeps getting bigger, but it keeps getting more creative. It keeps getting better. I mean, just the the attitudes and the the people in it. I feel like obviously there's always going to be, you know, exam or um, exceptions. But I think you really have a good environment of people who are collaborative and they're positive and they they want to get better and they want to see everybody get better. Right. So that, that makes it easier. And I do like the the other thing to, to toot our own horn for about the Minnesota comedy scene is that it is a scene where you're allowed to have a perspective and you're allowed to go, okay, I'm going to twist this show this direction or try and turn this kind of diagonal versus some places where it's show up, be funny, here's the format, this is what's expected, you can't do anything. So we do have a combination of, you know, experiential comedians and characters and storytellers. And, you know, if you are, you know, kind of like me and some of my crew that we want to be able to go, well, we were funny, but we had – a value or a message or something else and, and take people on kind of a, a gambit of emotions, you can give that a shot here. When there's other yeah. markets, they'd go, um, no, three comedians, this much time, this is the format that you're supposed to do, and why are you, you know, no, nobody wants to hear all this extra stuff. Like, I've had uh-huh. that. And it's, it's, it's great that we are – able to push uh, the envelope a little bit here like I I mean I it's funny because when people I remember the last year that I tried out for last comic standing and we were in New York on a bunch of us and you could see all of the little pods of people from places where you had scenes and it it's surprising I think to non-comedians because Minnesota still has this reputation of flyover country that around the country though Saying that you're a, ca- a stand-up comedian from Minnesota carries weight. Absolutely. Because they know that if you are here and you really are a professional and this is what you do, that means you work and you work at it and you work at the craft. And it's like being in New York where it's stand-up, where if we go hang out in L.A., and no offense to my friends who are in L.A., a lot of them are actors that are trying to figure out how to build something else. For and sure. it's harder to make it as a full-time stand-up comedian just because you can't get the stage time. When if you're in the Minnesota, they're like, oh, you're probably grinding it out. And I remember when I started a million years ago, because um, I started just before you started writing, Patrick. Uh, mm-hmm. But I remember, and that was when I was single and didn't have a kid. You know, So it was Monday night you're at Acme, Tuesday night you're at Knuckleheads, Wednesday at your Minnesota mm-hmm. Comedy Club. You know, like, And then there was all these other things. So you just did a circuit, and that's what you yeah. did. And and that was before you were getting paid. So basically, that's you going out, drinking, you know, hanging out every night, you know, doing whatever you did during the day. And that's how you got funny. And then hanging out long enough that not only would you get more time at an open mic, but maybe a headliner would go, hey, you want to come on the road with me? And you'd go, mm-hmm. okay, not only is this person funny and it could turn into something, they're not creepy. I'm probably not going to get murdered, you know, in my sleep. I'm like, I feel <laughs> it's okay getting in the car with this person. And so, you know, that brings us to, because I haven't been doing it completely this long, but I think that some of the people that uh, come up in your book, uh, uh, Patrick, Funny Thing About Minnesota, published through the Minnesota Historical Society Press, you know, it brings me to some of the things that you cover in your book. So what made you go, okay, I'm going to do something long form and actually put together this book, Patrick? Yeah, so, you know, I think, you know, you kind of touched on it there, right? I think when you when you talk about Minnesota comedy, there's kind of this lore about Minnesota comedy, you know, and it goes back, you know, decades where people say, like, oh, you know, Minnesota comedy, like, that's been, 
that's been the big, that's been the trailblazer for mm-hmm. a long time, you know, from the Louis Andersons right. to Liz Winstead's to, you know, through the generations. And I heard that from the, from the day I started, you know, coming and talking about comedy, but I didn't understand why. You know, I knew some of the names, right? Like, I mean, I'd heard of, obviously, I knew Louis, and I'd heard of, you know, like, Scott Hansen's Comedy Gallery, and I, you know, I knew who Alex Cole was, and I knew some of these names, you know, obviously, everybody knows Fancy Ray, so I right. knew Fancy Ray and, like, you know, names like this. But I really wasn't sure, like, okay, but how did that start? Like, where do you where do you pick up? And kind of similar to, like, the story I told you, you know, I didn't know, you know, I was like, okay, how do you even start comedy? Not even your comedy, but how do you start comedy as right. a whole? And so, you know, shout out to the Minnesota Historical Society Press because they, they reached out to me because they'd seen some of my other writing, and we had a conversation about you know, have you ever thought about this? Because they kind of had the same question. They were kind of like, you know, we, we know about this, we read about this, but we don't really know the backstory. And so they said, why don't you look into it, see if there's a story there, put something together and let us know. So I really did a lot of the research before there was ever even a, a book deal. You know, I yeah. was calling and talking with a lot of people and just kind of trying to understand. And, you know, from my experience, you know, we can talk more about this. It was like every time I talked to somebody – 10 new names and five new stories and 80 new venues, there would be all these new layers that would pop up, right? right? And it was crazy because that's when I realized just how big this was and how deep this went. And, um, you know, just as a fan, just as, you know, I mean, we're talking about geeks here, you know, I was always into geeking out about comedy. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to know the story myself. Like, right. I genuinely was like, this is a story I would like to see. You know, I would read this, I would watch this, I would listen to this whether I was involved in it or not. So, I mean, it was really kind of the uh, the dream assignment for me, so to speak. Well, as a, a comedy geek, from beginning, from inception to publication, how long did it take you to create your book, Patrick? Bell to bell, it was probably just under about two years. Okay, that's pretty good. We've talked to a lot yeah. of authors. It's, some of them, they, they are percolating on things for a long time, yeah. so congratulations. Well, I'm not that smart, so it's fine. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I was going to ask, was it was it easy to grab the content for your chapters or talking to some of these um, individuals that you mentioned? Were you able to do, dig a little deeper and actually have a conversation with them about their thoughts? And how hard was it to get again? You like you like Shannon mentioned, sometimes it takes you know a decade to write a book because you got to find the right person, you got to have the right conversation. Um, it seems like two years is kind of expedited um, in that sense. I'm assuming you had everybody who you wanted to talk to were more than happy to kind of open up? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, in all honesty, the, the research and writing was about a year. Okay. And then next year was all the the boring parts, the, the proofreadings and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But, no, I mean, it, you know, to your, to your question, I kind of had an initial list, right? Like I had a handful of names where I was like, okay, I know I need to talk to these people. And then it just kind of grew based on those conversations. You know, like there were people who I talked to and they would mention somebody who I had never even heard of before. Like um, one in, I think he was, he might have still been around. You still probably see him pop up here and there at Acme. He doesn't do comedy anymore, but um, Alex Jackson, he used yeah. to be a firefighter in town. He was the he, fire chief for a while. Fire chief, yeah, excuse fire me. Chief. He's going to get pissed that I disrespected his, his <laughs> role with the, uh, the fire department. Mm-hmm. No, he was a name that I, I wasn't familiar with. I had never met him. And then he and I just kind of met him passing one night at Acme. We were both judging for the uh, the funniest person contest. And he was like, oh, if you ever want to hear some of these stories, like, you let me know. And so I just kind of called him. And that changed, I mean, that changed the direction of some of the book. I mean, some of his stories and some of his memories were huge. Right. And there were 
lot of those moments. You know, there was a lot of people like that, you know, um, talking to, you know, Ken Bradley was somebody, talking to Colleen Cruz and Kristen Anderson-Anderson, you know, a lot of these people who I didn't know or I maybe heard their names, but I didn't know much about them, who would come up. So it's kind of funny that you asked because at one point I kind of had to make the decision to almost cut it off because I was like, I could come up, like I could interview people for five years if I wanted to. Right. You know, I could be, but at some point it became less about, okay, how many – how many stories and how many anecdotes and things can you get? And how much does it give kind of the full picture of what Twin Cities comedy was like from start through, call it kind of the burst, right, okay. to like the early 90s. So, so yeah, so, I mean, to answer the question, it was, it was fairly easy, I'll say, to get in touch with, with that initial list. Um, there was a few that didn't happen that, you know, I still to this day I'm kind of bummed about for various reasons. But mm-hmm. most part, you know, that was easy, and then it was just a matter of, you know, kind of following the following the trail. And right. also, you know, and we can get into this a little bit more, being able to kind of navigate 30, 40 different versions of what really happened. That was another thing that was tough. And, you know, you, you got to kind of start hearing the stories and, and starting to make some – start to understand some things for yourself or make some assumptions based on, based on different slants on the truth, right. you know? Well, it's so wonderful for you to share those names. I mean, I, when you talk about the Alex Jacksons and the the Louis Andersons and the Joe Manjaris and the Kristen Andersons, all these people that were established when I started and really uh, built the way that I interact with other, we'll say, comedians that are up and coming. I mean, because it was some of my, you know, my – uh, interactions like one of the first rooms that I used to work on a regular basis is one that Alex Cole put his name on so we'd have mm-hmm. an audience and and he's the one that got us the room and then we do a rotating showcase there for all of us that needed quality stage time or you know I opened for Alex and and C Willie and their crew for they they did a four guy show for a while and I got sure. to open for them a lot and learn you really get to learn a lot when you're watching people go through this and and you know, one of my favorite stories of all time is the first time I, I opened when I, this was actually in Austin, Texas. And I, it was the first time, one of the first times I was paid to uh, do stand-up comedy. Like, I was, like, officially, like, on their roster of MCs. So, you know, it was, you know, I had moved down there. So it was before I'd ever gotten paid by any place here in Minnesota. And I was working at Cap City Comedy Club, and they tell us that Louie Anderson is coming in. And they bump the headliner that we were supposed to have, and it's me in the feature and Louie Anderson. And so this is way back, right before, like, Family Feud days and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. he was a big deal, but he wasn't, like, now he has so many, you know, Emmys and all of these things. So, yeah. you know, and I'm like, oh, neat. And, you know, I watched this cartoon. Okay, I'm all, you know, excited. Mm-hmm. And I just remember Louie coming in and watching my set the first night. Mm-hmm. And Patrick will tell you this, Jaden. There's a lot of times headliners do not pay attention to their openers, nor do they need to, and it's not required. I never took it personally. Um, but Louie, on the other hand, watched our performances and then came up to me after the show and goes, hey, do you mind if I give you some notes? Like, I'm going to tell Louie no. And I was like, <laughs> hey, that, thanks. That would be great. So he watched my set every night the whole week and hand wrote me notes. That I still wow. have to this day in one of my old notebooks. So I still have it. And and it just made me go, yeah, I'm never going to be so busy or important or, or jaded that I'm not going to talk to somebody that's 
there and opening me and giving it a shot and just needs a couple of words of encouragement. And that may not always be, you know, I may have talked some people into doing it that I should have let washed out. I don't know. <laughs> so do you make it a point, Shannon, to pass on your wisdom to you headline now? So the people who are lining up for you, like how much is it, you know, actively telling them what, they could work on versus passively, you know, after you guys are having a drink, to be like, hey, I like what you did there. I wonder if you could take it a different direction. Like, how much is that active versus passive? Uh, my, my communication style is very motherly in nature in general. And so I'm more like, like, would you like some notes? Or would you, same thing that Louie came to me, because not everybody interested in your opinion. And it doesn't even, you know, kind of thing. So, you know, it's, it's, I always ask, hey, would you mind if I told you? Or I, you know, I have a tag if you're interested. And if they don't use it, then I don't take it personally. But if there's somebody who, you know, I think, it's it's always been something where I always, you know, you know, I talk to everybody. Like I try to, you know, try to be accessible and try to talk to people because people treated me that way when I first started. And it's a scene where that doesn't always happen. And so I was very fortunate that I got um, – I was able to find like a little crew and hang out and feel comfortable because it doesn't, it's a very intimidating thing to show up. And, and it's always interesting. And, and Patrick, I'm curious about your take on this, the, that even though you're on shows and there's multiple performers during a show, um, when you were uh, interviewing people, um, did you, did it still seem, and it, or is this just my perspective that although you are performing around people it's still very much golf it's very much an individual sport even if you're on the name with other people oh 100 percent. i mean that's yeah i mean you know better than i do even but yeah i mean it's funny you know that you brought up louis for example right because like if you talk to those guys even the the first group of guys or group of individuals who are performing you know you had you know like louis and you had alex cole and Jeff Gerbino and yep. Bill Bauer, and um, at that point, you know, you had Joel Madison yep. and um, Jeff Cesario, guys like that, and they all speak very highly of each other. You know, they all have great things to say. They all really did, you know, they, they enjoyed being around each other. They enjoyed, you know, having the opportunity to, to work on things together, and like you said, but at the end of the day, you know, it was still very much, you know, there was still a level of competition there, and there was still a level of, you know, this is a solo sport. Right. You know, this is not, uh, this is not a, a team sport. Now, I think it's funny because you get somebody like Louie, who's one of the, the sweetest people in the world, and he'll be the first to tell you, he's like, well, you know, if, uh, you know, sometimes whoever gets the most popular, it's not, it's not about being the best. It's just kind of because they got the chance. And he's like, and, you know, I feel like I wouldn't have gotten where I was if we weren't all in that together. You know, mm-hmm. if I wouldn't have had those friends and if I wouldn't have had those people mm-hmm. to me. Now, when you're Louis Anderson, I think that's a much easier thing to say because, right. like you said, he's got a whole bunch of Emmys and everything else. But, but I do think, you know, there, it, that was a recurring theme. Is, you know, there was definitely a lot of people who were really fond of memories they had from the relationships they built. But at the end of the day, you know, I asked Louis point blank. I said, okay, so who was the best? Mm-hmm. And, oh, we all thought we were the best. He's right. like, I absolutely thought I was the best. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think you, you have to have that to a degree. and You have to at least want to be the best, Right. right? Right, right. It's a it's an odd collection of uh, you know you have this intense ego 
but there's also a wee bit of self-loathing, like a little, like, like, <laughs> like even when you're, even me on a good day where I'm just like on my personal affirmations, that imposter syndrome is like, I think, what are the common things that we have? Even if you like, if you ask me like, oh yeah, I, I'm very, I, I'm the funniest ever. I should have gotten that. You know, why did I, I, I should have gotten City Pages funniest sooner. I mean, I should get, <laughs> I mean, that's how you think. But you also go, every time you get off stage, you wonder that somebody's going to pull back that uh, curtain and show that you really aren't all those things. And so, I again, I applaud you for hanging out with us because um, I think that we've, and I, I feel like you have written on this before, and it's something that I had at least talked about in social media, like even when you really you kind of look at the behinds and the, the, the guts of a comedy scene, uh, you do end up finding a lot of people who are incredibly funny but not always happy or have a lot of demons, a lot of those dark things. So how uh, were you able to navigate some of that as you were doing your research and interviewing people for your book, Patrick? Sure. I mean, people, you know, I have a whole a whole chapter in the book that's very specifically about the vices, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's some of these stories that are a little bit more more well-documented, excuse me, than others. You know, I mean, Bill Bauer died um, back in, oh, gosh, I think it was 2012. Um, You know, and he, you know, very well known that he had a a long history with, you know, drug abuse and things like that. He got clean, he got sober before the end of his life. But, you know, the stories about Bill and drugs are are very well known out there. And that's not just him. You know, there's a lot of comedians like that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there was a comedian named Ron Douglas who was fantastic, and I believe, you know, he died of alcoholism. So, you know, you had a lot of individuals who – those stories are very well known. You know, I think in thinking this, both comedy circles and people who are fans are well known. I think the interesting stories are the ones that maybe weren't as well known and getting people to open up about, you know, you just mentioned some of the, like self-loathing, right? right? I think, and you can tell me better than, than I probably can, but in my experience, I think a lot of times, you know, comics are, you know, performing and they want to do this in order to kind of mask some of that stuff, in order to kind of mask those insecurities, in order to kind of, you know, push those things down. And, and it was interesting because in some cases they'd be very forthcoming. There was a lot of self-awareness, right? I mean, Alex Cole had no problem telling me that he had an insane cocaine habit and right. that he was, you know, he was doing incredible amounts of blow during shows. You know, he would do bits where he'd pretend like he was following somebody's bathroom and he would do lines and go back on stage. Other though, you know, it was one of those, I almost had to kind of start to, to put the pieces together from the story. And I don't want to, you know, I'm not speaking out of school here because it's in the book, but for example, Scott Hansen, who everybody knows was a huge powerhouse here in the Twin Cities, you know, yeah. owned and managed a bunch of clubs and things like that. You know, I think there's there's always been a very divisive opinion about Scott. You know, a lot of people will say, you know, really nice things. He was a great performer. He did a lot to help people. And you get some comics who say some not so nice things about him. You know, right. they'll talk about he played favorites and he was tough to work with and he blackballed people and all this stuff. And it was interesting because as I talked to some people who really knew him, who had been around, like, and even talking to him, you'd hear some stories and you could kind of feel like, okay, there's there's got to be a motivation there, but I don't know what it is. Right. And talking to comics, they kind of would help kind of clarify that. So, like, in Scott's instance, you know, he, he would feel very self-conscious about, like, his weight, for example. Like, right. there's a story in the book which – Apparently, me and Jerry Seinfeld are going to have beef now after this. But there's a story in the book about how Jerry Seinfeld did a show, and Scott was in the green room with him, and there was a bunch of other comics in there. And I actually heard this from a few comics, and Ken Bradley was the one who ended up finally telling me and letting me put his name on it. But he said that Scott looked over at Jerry at one point and said, hey, Jerry, you know, after the show, why don't we go over to um, – 
oh gosh, what's it, uh, Market Barbecue, and why don't we get some dinner, we'll go eat. And Jerry was reading a newspaper, and he put his newspaper down, and he looks, and he goes, Scott, I think you've eaten. And he puts his newspaper back up, which, you know, off the cuff, when you don't have any context, a kind of a funny line, obviously lowbrow, it's a kind of cheap shot, it's kind of like a funny line. But, you know, to hear Ken Bradley say it, he's like, you could see, you know, in Scott's face, that, like, it really hurt, right. you know, it. You know, it, it hurt him, and it, it caused some of that internal pain, some of that internal, like you said, you know, some of that strife and some of that conflict. And I think what was interesting, and Scott's a great example that this book gave me the opportunity to do, was to examine not just what those what those vices were, right? I mean, it's I think it's easy to say, oh, this person was into drugs, this person overate, this person womanized, this person right. drank, whatever their thing was. But this book kind of gave me the opportunity to understand the bigger picture of why some of these things happened and what some of those motivations were. And to your point, Shannon, I think that a lot of those those things still ring true today. You know, I mean, right. there's still a lot of comics who, you know, they do have things they're really self-conscious about and things that are really painful and they use comedy as a way to kind of compensate. And those things might come out sideways, whether it's in their comedy or whether it's in their dealings with other comics or whether it's how they conduct their business. And so, you know, it was it was – an exercise in getting people to open up and making them feel comfortable enough to talk about that, but also in, you know, kind of being mindful enough to say, you know, I'm not just going to say, well, here's the story I heard, but to try to understand the bigger picture, understand why some of these things were happening. Right. With you, you know, there's, there's parts of this book where there's, and not that Scott story specifically, but there's certain parts of this book, like there are some comics who were not super happy with me when this book came out. Right. And, and it wasn't me that they were upset with because, you know, I didn't I didn't take any liberties. I didn't make anything up. I didn't give my opinions. I just told the stories it was told to me. But I think in a lot of these chapters, you know, it really does kind of it kind of puts a spotlight on what some of those motivations and those shortcomings and some of those, you know, that internal strife, like why it was there. And I think a lot of comics maybe got a little uncomfortable having to, to look at that and really have to talk about that. But I felt for the sake of the book that it was important to understand kind of the, the bigger picture of who they were as people and why the comedy scene was that way and just how those things kind of helped contributed to the whole thing. Right. Well, one of the guests that we had had on a previous episode was Tom Arnold. And so mm. when we were talking to Tom, that was one of the things that, you know, we brought up is because he was around during a lot of uh, the yeah. scene that you cover in the book and and hung out with those. And he would say, you know, he even said it used to just be bananas um, and talking mm-hmm. about that. And, you know, I, you know, appreciate you covering all of those, because even if you go into the stories of the people that in the scene that we have lost, like, you know, the, by the time Wild Bill passed, there were a number of reasons. But if we look closer at things like the passing of Mitch Hedberg and there's been some other things that have really impacted the scene and you wonder why a lot of us really have like they're like, well, she's a comedian and it's not just me. There's other friends. They're like, why does she have this? Why is she on this mental health? Um, soapbox. And why do we have shows that have those things? And I think that it's good for you to cover some of that because that is something that's also very prevalent, not only in our scene, but in the scene in general. And being able to cover that and go, you know, even if you look at somebody like a, a you know, a, you know, we, I mean, I feel like I've lost too many friends, you know, um, mm-hmm. because we don't have health insurance and mental health things and and can't address any of those things. So being able to go, no, here's what it looks like. And again, like you said, the motivation and why we lean into those vices and those things and what you're masking and what you're self-medicating. I, it's very exposing, but I think that it's also real, you know, and going, okay, you know, some nights, uh, 
everything about being a stand-up comedian is amazing, and some nights it's just a job. It is my job mm-hmm. to show up and be funny, and I think it's good for people to be able to read about the backstory in a book like yours, Patrick. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it, it's funny because I was talking to Lewis Lee, who owns Acme, when mm-hmm. I was putting this together because there's a chunk in there about Lewis. And one of the things he said to me was, you know, he said this about his club, but I kind of took this attitude with the whole book. You know, I didn't want this to necessarily just be an infomercial about Twin Cities comedy. I didn't want this to be like, oh, look at all the funny people and look at all the great things we did. I mean, at its heart, this is about, you know, this is a people story. This is about the human beings who, you know, they were creative, they were clever, they were flawed, they, they wanted to do something unique and different. They didn't really know how to navigate it and everything that came along with it. And to right. your point, some, some some of those stories in the book, I mean, there's plenty of that stuff about, oh, this was so funny and so fun. Of course there was, because sometimes it's great. And there's plenty of stuff in that book, too, about it got ugly, and there was fights, and there was egos, and there was, you know, just stuff that, that really, you know, for, for most people would have been like, I don't need this in my life. And and I think it's important. Like you said, if you're really going to, I think, talk about a scene like the Twin City comedy scene, I think you have to have both sides of that. Right. One more thing I want to cover before we start to wrap, uh, Patrick, especially with everything that's going on and and, uh, a number of uh, national and international reckonings that we have as far as our BIPOC community comes. I know that you do uh, stop down and and really want to cover the emergence of some of our black performers here in the Twin Cities and Minnesota comedy scene. We've already mentioned uh, the Alex Jacksons of the world and the Fancy Rays. And so as you were navigating that, how did you Mm -hmm. decide to cover that in your book? Yeah, you know, that was, I mean, early on, you know, and this is something that I've, I've made an effort to do in my writing with City Pages or even on my site I do now, was, you know, I think it's, it's very important if you're going to talk about, kind of like I said, and I sound like a broken record, but you talk about a scene, you need to talk about the whole scene. And I think that oftentimes it's easy to kind of get pigeonholed into like, well, these are the performers at a specific club that I go to, so that's the scene. Or, you know, even like you said, like racially, or if we're talking about, you know, gender, you know, there was there was not a lot of women in those early days who you heard a ton about. Right. You know, if you, I mean, even on the cover, you know, I've got five white guys on the cover of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were the most prominent, but I felt like it was not going to do justice to just talk about, oh, here was, you know, these five white guys and all their friends. Like you said, I mean, Tom Arnold's a great example. He was right. super funny, super great guy, did a ton for, for other comics. But that's not necessarily indicative of the scene as a whole. So I really did try to to dig in and say, okay, you know, who else was out there, you know, and what were those unique experiences like? And, you know, um, Alan, Fancy Ray tells a really great story, you know, just kind of talking about, um, you know, African-American comics and back then, there really wasn't a lot necessarily. And he has a great story about how, you know, he used to be one of the guys who would go into these small towns where there had never been comedy before. Right. You know Fancy Ray. You know Fancy Ray. He's Fancy Ray 24-7. Yes. <laughs> he, he talked about... Um, the prettiest man in Alex. comedy. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah. I mean, he talked about, you know, like the Alex Jacksons and... Uh, oh, gosh, there's another name that's escaping me at the moment. He was around at the same time. Uh, it, another was Alex. it was probably C. Willie Miles and then... Um, oh, why can't I think of the other guy that used to do the show with us? I know who you mean. Editing. You know who I mean. It'll yeah. come back to me. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I was saying, like, you know, what was it like? And he goes, well, you know, those guys would come in. He goes, and they were pretty, he goes, they were pretty low-key guys, you know. And he goes, and they would still experience, you know, racism, and they would experience some uncomfortable situations. He goes, 
And then you got me coming in. I'm larger than life, and I got my butter curls, and he's wearing makeup at the time. Yeah. Like, he is full little Richard. So, Fancy Ray, he wasn't going to tone down who he was, you know? And it's, it's interesting to hear the differences in stories. I mean, you can hear about, you know, like you said, you know, Alex Jackson's story where he's a little bit more. Charlie Walker. Charlie, Charlie Walker. Yes, yes, Charlie Walker. That was who I was Charlie looking Walker. for. Yes. And, like, those guys who, you know, were maybe a little more subdued than a Fancy Ray. Right. Who, in you know, their experiences, and then you hear about Fancy Rays and how they how they manage those things. And I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, one thing which, you know, I don't want to go too far off topic, I really give a lot of credit to the Twin Cities comedy scene, and, you know, this is probably not my place to say this because, obviously, I'm a white guy saying this, but even in the book, you know, we talk a lot about how a lot of comics, whether they're female, whether they were, you know, minorities, whether they were, you know, uh, LGBT, whatever the case was, were given opportunities even early on where a lot of comics weren't necessarily given that before, you right. know? Even even names that now you, you shake your head at the idea that they wouldn't get booked, you know, George Wallace, when he first came here in the early days, he was getting bookings really early. Early Chris Rock came through here through the comedy galleries in the early days. So, you know, a lot of, and even, it's, it's funny to think now, you know, sometimes, well, it's not funny, but you think about, you know, female comics weren't getting necessarily the same opportunities, and there was a really strong effort put to give female female comics more opportunity back then even. You know, whether it was, you know, Kristen Anderson, and, you know, you talk about, like, Susan Voss, who was over at uh, Dudley Riggs, and you talk about, you know, even out-of-towners, you know, Jenny Jones was coming to town, and Ellen was coming to town, and names like Roseanne, this. Roseanne, when she was still doing stand-up. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you, so really, you know, you got to give a lot of credit, I think, to Twin Cities, you know, comedy scene for, for really trying to have that, that diversity and really trying to have those unique voices. But you're right. I mean, I, I think that I had to make a really conscious effort to say, there needs to be a spotlight on different experiences. Because I think right. it can be really easy to take a story about this and both figuratively and literally kind of whitewash it if you're not right. careful, right? Yeah. Because when you get Louie and Tom Arnold and Liz Winston, he's like, I mean, a lot of the big prominent names, they're all white folks. So right. they're all, you know, like middle-aged white guys. And it's, right. it's easy to be like, oh, well, these are the biggest names, so let's just focus on them. So I thought, you know, I had to be very, very um, – conscious of that and it you know i think that it, it only does justice to the story if you get the whole story you know otherwise right. you're, you're kind of looking at a, a half and half and even lewis lee's story i try to kind of talk a little bit more about how he got into it because he has an incredible story you know, right. now he's not a performer he's a club owner but i mean he's an incredible immigrant story you know he can hear he speak english to getting to the point where he is now so right. i mean even trying to dig into some of that in the book was really important to me Right. Well, we're excited, and it sounds like you had a wealth of information that didn't make it into this first edition. So what do you think about a follow-up book? Are you looking at a funny thing about Minnesota 2 or 3, or what are you thinking, Patrick? We'll see if comics are still talking to me after this first one. It might be a, it might be a real, it'd be like me and three people in a room for the next <laughs> book. If, uh, too many. No, you know, I, my hope is to do, is to do another book. You know, there's, there's some talk about it right now. We've been having some discussions about, you know, where to kind of go from here. Right. And so there's, you know, there's a lot left, right? So the book goes from the seventies through kind of what I call the bubble burst period of like the beginning of the nineties. Right. So right around the time that like Acme Comedy Club opened is right when everything kind of fell apart. Right. right. And that's when, you know, you talked about LA earlier. You had comics who, you know, the comics who were really good, they all left and they went to L.A. and they wanted to be sitcom stars. And what right. you had left, Louis Lee affectionately has referred to as 
a bunch of sad middle-aged guys who their midlife crisis was, I'm going to be a comedian now. Right. Mm-hmm. Left. Yeah. So, but then there was kind of that second resurgence, and that's around the time that you came in, right? right. I mean, even talking about some of the other names from Minnesota, you know, you're, you know, you mentioned Mitch Hedberg, but, you know, Nick Swordson and Maria Bamford and some of the names that are even, you know, making a lot of noise now, you know, um, Chad Daniels right. and Pete Lee and Tracy Ashley came through here and, you know, Steve Willie, you talked about a lot of names. So I think there's a ton more to go into. And like I said, just as a comedy geek, you know, that's a story that I love talking about. I mean, I sit here and talk to you guys years off the last hour about this. Like, <laughs> I can talk about this forever. And if there's other people out there who are just as interested in it, then, yeah, I'm hoping I can I can continue that story and, you know, get a whole new batch and talk about what happens next. Well, we appreciate you sharing that. That's what we do here on BR Geek is we let somebody come in and talk about the thing that uh, their uh, loved ones are sick of hearing about. So thank you very much. for. <laughs> it's our favorite thing. We put a quarter in you and you just go. So we appreciate it. So everybody can get a copy of your book, Funny Thing About Minnesota by Patrick Strait. You can go to his website, mncomedy.com. We're also going to make sure that we put all of the information on your social. Just follow at Patrick Strait on Twitter and Instagram. If I follow you, is it all about comedy or do I see cute pictures of your, your new baby? Oh, all you're going to see is kid stuff, man. <laughs> That's much better. I used to go to comedy clubs every night of the week. Now, like, you know, things opened up, and I'm going to I'm going to the Great Wolf Lodge, and I'm going to the trampoline park. That's <laughs> yeah. my life now. That's hey, my life. Hey, so. we're not mad at you. We're not mad at you. So, uh, you, go. you know, good luck with your family, and we do uh, appreciate you, so you doing that. We appreciate everything you're sharing, and personally, I appreciate all of the love that you have shown, not only myself as a performer, but our comedy scene in general. It's nice to know that there's somebody out there looking out for us, Patrick. So thank you very much. Um, Jayton, I know that we have lots of stuff going on at the Twin Cities Film Fest, so I always encourage people to go to our website, TwinCitiesFilmFest.org. Um, we, before we put this out, we are still going to be looking for people. If you would like to learn more about being an actor or performer here in the Twin Cities, you can be part of the 2021 Twin Cities Actor Expo that's going to be coming up in July. So we have all that information. Again, just go to our website. It's a great opportunity. If you are uh, just dipping your toe in, then you should go ahead and you come to that. You'll meet some of the agents that are in town and just see some common, uh, some, some, some performers with some uh, commonalities you have. And we have some great educational opportunities. Right, Jay? Yeah, absolutely. There's plenty of opportunities for uh, quote-unquote newbies and as, as well as individuals who are seasoned and they just want to reconnect. Obviously, last year was really hard for everybody, especially in our industry. So this is an opportunity just to reconnect and just to, re-engage um, with actors and, and filmmakers and casting directors and agents. I think work is coming mm-hmm. um, uh, down the pipeline, uh, and uh, this is a great opportunity to get back on the saddle. So, so again, you go to our website, TwinCitiesFilmFest.org, to find that. Uh, we are very excited that Patrick's with us again. We're going to make sure all of his socials are out there. Patrick, uh, we ask everybody who we like. Uh, are you willing to come back on the show again? We'll have you out again soon. We'll uh, talk about some more comedy with you. I'm sure we have more floating around in your brain, right? Absolutely. And see, now you now you back yourself into the corner because now if I don't come back again, and then it'll be like, oh, it's because they didn't ask me. 
first. <laughs> if I don't come back to the show, it's because they didn't ask me to come back on. All right, I will take that. I will That's take the only that. reason I'm on, because Shannon keeps asking me. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I need to be more care- careful and cautious with my phrasing. Uh, for anybody <laughs> else out there, uh, you can follow BR Geek on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also email us at brgeekshow at gmail.com. And if you want to be part of the show, you can leave us a message at 612-276-2774. We encourage you to like and subscribe to BR Geek wherever you find your favorite podcast, and we will keep putting you in touch with fantastic guest geeks like uh, our good friend Patrick. So, Patrick, we appreciate you. Jayton, you know I always appreciate you, even if I uh, forget to call you and ask you to be on the show one of these days. So, <laughs> for everybody else out there, thank you for being part of BR Geek when everyone is a geek is about. <laughs> To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.